getting to stand up here and sing. Last year, we were all at home, and uh, we're thankful for the ability to do that. Thankful for those who, uh, maybe some men who stood with us in their living rooms on the live stream and sang this morning. And um, we are thankful for our mothers this morning, Lord. We're thankful for the women that you have put in our lives who have helped to, uh, to shape and form uh, all of us. And uh, Father, I thank you for my own mother. Thank you for uh, how she has demonstrated um, humility and administration and leadership uh, to me, how she has demonstrated a love for your word and a love for being taught from your word to me uh, from uh, very early on in her walk with you, Lord. And um, I thank you for how that has shaped my own life. So now we come to your word, Lord, and we ask to be shaped by you. And we ask that uh, you would speak, God, through your Bible. Uh, we know that the words of life are written there, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand them. And uh, we just give this time over to you, Lord, surrendered in our hearts to what you would say, surrendered in our hearts to your authority. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I had planned this morning that we would just preach. Uh, I'd go through Luke 9, 49, all the way to 62, and we finished chapter 9 this morning. That was my plan, and I just could not get past verse 50 uh, for two reasons. One is I really felt like I was having to try to shoehorn it in with the rest of those verses, and you never feel good about that as a pastor, so I didn't want to do that. And uh, the other reason is just there's, there's a lot in these two verses, I think, for us uh, in terms of how it impacts how we think about our church and how we think about other churches, particularly in our area, uh, how we think about mission work, how we think about evangelism. I think that these two verses will impact our prayer lives uh, and the way that we talk to God about the kingdom and about ministry. I think these two verses impact how we give. And so that's why I couldn't get past these two verses. It's because I just thought there's, there's too much there for us uh, to breeze past it this morning. These are verses this morning that ultimately beckon us to have what I want to call a kingdom mindset. All right? And if there are two words you leave here this morning and uh, having them imprinted on your heart, those are the two words that uh, I desire you would have imprinted on your heart. Kingdom mindset. Okay? Let's remember where we left off two weeks ago. The disciples were in an argument about who was the greatest among them. Jesus knows what they are thinking in their hearts, so he takes a nearby child and he stands that child up next to them and says, you know, you want to be great? Uh, then you will, you know, receive this child. Uh, you will put yourself last. There will be nobody in the world that you look at and you say, uh, I'm too good to serve them, because if you're putting yourself last, then everyone is above you. Okay, so if you want to be great in the kingdom, then you, not, you don't need to ascend, you don't need to puff up, you need to deflate. And you need to descend and you need to serve uh, even the least of these. And so we pick it up there in verse 49. John has what seems to be an immediate response to what Jesus has said to them. It says John answered in verse 49. So he is responding and he says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. So according to John, there's this guy who's casting out demons and he's doing it in the name of Christ. And, and John says, we tried to put a stop to it. We didn't want him to do it, 
because he does not follow along with us, which means he's not one of the twelve, first of all. Okay? He's not one of the inner circle. Uh, and John was in the inner circle of the inner circle. Peter, James, and John were the closest to Jesus within the disciples. So uh, he's not in that inner circle, and he's not in the larger inner circle of the twelve disciples. And even more than that, it seems like he would not be one of the 70 that's going to be sent out in Luke 10. Uh, he's not associated with the band of disciples that are following Jesus around on a daily basis. John's in a sense saying, we don't know him. Don't know this guy. So we tried to stop him because he was a stranger to us. The only connection that they had to him was that he was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. So they, they tried to put a stop to it. He tried to, to make it end. Um, it's interesting John says they tried to stop him because we just saw, if you'll remember, nine of the disciples be unable to cast out a demon, right? Remember they tried to cast out a demon from the boy who was being picked up and thrown on the ground by the demon. He's convulsing, he's foaming at the mouth, and, and then Jesus cast out the demon. And he, he tells them that it was because of their lack of faith that they could not cast out the demon. Um, so it, it's odd that they would try to stop him considering they themselves couldn't do it. So he is succeeding at what they were failing at, but they tell him, don't do it. It doesn't make much sense. None of it really makes much sense. This would be like if you were on a demolition crew, okay, and you're on one side of this building, and your boss has sent you there on a mission to knock down the building. And so you're on this demolition crew, and you're sitting there, and you're swinging this sledgehammer uh, trying to knock this building down and get it down to the foundation. But as you are taking your hacks at it, and as you're making your swings, uh, you find you're just not, you're not gaining much ground, okay? You're not getting very far. So you get a little frustrated. You walk around to the back of the building, and when you get back there, you see some guy back there, and he's swinging the, the sledgehammer at the building too. You say, well, what are you doing here? He said, well, your boss is my boss. You got the same boss, and I was sent to knock down this building. You go, well, you can't do this. I don't know you. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If the house is coming down, right, the mission is the same, the building is the same, and the boss is the same, and the instructions are the same, then what would be the point in trying to stop him? He's on your side, right? Clearly, he's on your team. So Jesus responds to the comments from John with what Matthew Henry calls a chiding, okay? He gives him a chiding, and he says, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. What is Jesus saying here? It's a very famous saying of Jesus's, actually, that has kind of worked its way into just our lexicon. Like People say this all the time. For he who is not against you is for you. He's saying, John, if he's knocking down the same building and he's doing it in my name, then why would you stop him? Same mission, same boss. Why would you stop him? Think about it. In verse 51, Jesus is about to turn his face toward Jerusalem. Verse 51, we'll read it next week, is a huge verse. It's a turning point in the book of Luke. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. From that moment forward, it's Jesus heading toward Jerusalem. He, he's, just, he's, just going, he's going straight there, and anybody who gets in his way, uh, he is going to rebuke. He teaches along the way. He heals along the way. But everything is barreling toward Jerusalem once you get to verse 51. And what's going to happen once he gets there? Well, the chief priests are going to be against them, right? The scribes will be against them. The Pharisees will be against them. 
The Roman government's going to be against him. Herod is going to be against him. One of his own disciples is going to turn on him. It's going to be real apparent when Jesus gets to Jerusalem to complete his task that there is a lot of opposition to the kingdom of God. That there is a lot of opposition to his mission. That there's a lot of people who want to see the kingdom burn down. A lot of people who want to see the kingdom collapse. People who want the kingdom work to be halted. And they want the king of the kingdom on a cross. That's what's waiting for him in Jerusalem. If that's the case, in a world where all of those people are against you, in a world where you have so few friends, the disciples, uh, they, they simply cannot afford to be counting allied forces as opposition. If they're knocking down the same house, and they've got the same boss, and they've got the same mission, then celebrate it. If Jesus' mindset sounds foreign to you, if you're like, I don't know about all this, that is because we have been programmed by our world to be so incredibly tribalistic. We live in a time where people are tribalistic. Our society is tribalistic. We divide everybody up. We divide people up by race. We divide people up by their political party. We divide people up by their gender and by their sexual preferences and behaviors. Think about how the American people are talked about during election seasons. The black vote, the Hispanic vote, the evangelicals in the religious right, white suburban mothers, like that's, that's a term. I'm not just throwing stuff out here. White suburban mothers is a term that is used when politicians talk about voters. The silent generation, right? If you're between the ages of 69 to 86, you're the silent generation. Because you don't get on social media and tell everybody who you're voting for. You just go and do it. So they, they never really know what you're going to do. So you're the silent generation. The LGBT vote, the millennials. During election season, you hear these terms thrown around, and these groups are pitted against one another by political parties, and the political parties just hope we've got enough of these blocks, right, the voting blocks on our side to win the election. It's tribalistic. And then these groups start to see the other groups as their enemies. In the United Kingdom over the last four years, there's been one question that has divided the citizenship. Are you in or are you out? Whole country divided by this one question. Are you in or are you out? Now, if you're not from the United Kingdom, you might say, well, what does that mean? What it means is, are you for the United Kingdom leaving the European Union or are you for them staying in the European Union? And your answer determines which tribe you belong to. Isn't that amazing? Seven-word question could divide entire countries. This is how the world operates. And the wisdom of the world has programmed us to be the same way. To see our tribe as our people and everybody else as our enemies. It's a toxic way to think about the world. It becomes especially damaging when you let it filter into the way that we do church and think about other Christians. There is a temptation for us as believers to major on minor things, right? Right? and to minor on major things. And if there are people who are on the other side of the minor things that we're majoring on, 
then we start to look at them as representing a different kingdom than us, all because they do not worship the same way that we worship, all because they do not view certain theological issues from our viewpoint, or they don't vote for the same candidates that we vote for. They do not do ministry the way that we do ministry. And we can start to look at brothers and sisters and actually demonize them over differences, and in doing that, we begin to make enemies out of spiritual family members. This is what it looks like when the church operates in the world's wisdom and how we deal with our differences. And it shouldn't be this way. You wouldn't treat your allies this way. But we're more than allies. I'm not talking about those of us that go to this church. We're talking about the kingdom. We're talking about believers who have repented of sin, put their trust in Christ, are holding to the true gospel and preaching, to the, true go- preaching the true gospel. These are not just allies. These, these are brothers and sisters. This is our family. So listen to Jesus in Matthew 12. He says, But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by uh, Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any house or, or any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? The Pharisees were arguing that Jesus was actually casting out demons with satanic power. And his response is, doesn't even make sense. You're, why would Satan cast out his own demons by his own power? Because even Satan knows that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. So if the devil knows it, the church ought to know it. Church has enemies in this world. Talked about Jesus' enemies when he went to Jerusalem. We have enemies lurking around in this world. You and I do. If you're a believer this morning, you've got enemies. Let's talk about some of these enemies. Revelation 12, we get a picture of some of these enemies. And in Revelation 13 as well. I'm not going to get into the weeds of interpretation on Revelation this morning, all right? We don't have the time, okay? You all have Mother's Day lunches to get to. I'm not going to get into a ton of cross-referencing with the book of Daniel or anything like that. Um, I'm, just going to, I'm just going to give you the interpretation, okay? And if, if you doubt me, you can look it up later and we can have that argument then, all right? Um, in Revelation 12, first of all, there's a red dragon, Okay? Well, we start, there's a, there's a woman giving birth. That's the first image, right? Appropriate for Mother's Day. There's a woman giving birth, and that woman represents Jerusalem giving birth to the Messiah, okay? The Messiah and the Messiah's people, all right? So the woman is good, but then there's this red dragon. It says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten hordes, and on his head so were seven diadems. This is Satan, Okay? The red dragon in Revelation 12 is Satan. Satan attacks the rule of God. Satan hates the authority of God, wants to undermine the authority of God. Satan wants to commit assault against heaven itself. Satan is our enemy. In Revelation 13, there's another enemy who's friendly with the dragon. It's the beast. It says, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. 
It's the weirdest Mother's Day sermon you've ever heard. The beast represents persecuting governments. Okay, that's what the beast is. So the, the dragon is Satan, and the beast who gets his authority from the dragon are governments who want to um, try to halt the work of the kingdom of God. They want to counterfeit the authority of Christ and try to have authority over the church. They want to hurt the church. The beast is fierce, is repulsive, and is a partner in the work of opposing the work of God with the enemy. And then later in Revelation 13, you have this false prophet. So the dragon tries to counterfeit the father. The the beast tries to counterfeit the son. The false prophet tries to counterfeit the Holy Spirit. The false prophet is the mouthpiece of the government, of the beast. Propaganda machine for those persecuting powers. It says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. If you read those texts, the dragon comes from the heavens, the beast from the sea, the false prophet from the earth. Which means that the enemies of God together are trying to take over the whole world. say, well, why do you read all that? Because I want you to see, with enemies like this, who can afford to make new enemies out of brothers and sisters? Who can do it? You have Satan himself, and you have governments coming against the church. This is happening. I know we don't experience this as much in America. Uh, Praise the Lord for that. But uh, if you just go to the north in Canada, okay, there's a pastor there who was put in jail, and then when he got out of jail, the government actually came and set up a fence around his church and locked it, and locked the congregation out of their church. That's Canada. Growing up, I always thought of Canada as like America Part B, you know what I mean? America Part 2 up there. I was like, yeah, you go to Canada, pretty much live the same life. That's happening right up to the north, and there are people experiencing a lot worse than that around the world. So you have persecuting governments coming against the church You have the the spirit of the Antichrist coming against the church. With enemies like this, who can afford to make new enemies out of Christians? When the Bible tells us that throughout history, Satan will oppose the church and he'll use those governments to hurt the church. He will use the subtle forces of communication in the modern world to blast an Antichrist message louder and louder. Then we can't afford to turn on Presbyterians because they baptize babies. Or Anglicans because they look at uh, communion a bit differently than us. Certainly can't afford to turn on our own brothers and sisters in the local church because we might have different views on budget or music or how to deal with COVID or whatever. Whatever issue is going to pop up that year. Every year brings its own issues. Don't fight with people knocking down the same building as you. Now, we got to step back and say, well, isn't there another side to this? Because you can't willy-nilly partner up with everybody. Because not everybody's holding to the same gospel. Just because it says church on the outside of the building doesn't mean they're preaching the same gospel. I'm not saying that we unflinchingly accept every teacher or church out there who claims the name of Christ. And if you consider Jesus' teaching ministry, you cannot argue he is saying that either. Consider this from him in Matthew 10. 
Verse 34, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. The gospel will ultimately bring peace. We know that. It brings peace even now to our souls, right? Wholeness, shalom. But there is also a sense in which the gospel divides. The gospel divides believer from unbeliever. The gospel divides good teaching from false teaching. It might even divide the same household. The New Testament is filled with warnings about those who will preach a different version of the gospel that is not actually the gospel. Jesus warned about false teachers. And they don't just show up with a shirt on that says false teacher. They show up looking like you. Looking like me. They look like sheep. Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Peter tells us false teachers rise up, not from outside in the world, from within the church. He says, but false prophets also appeared among the people, just as there will also be false prophets among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. See that secretly, like it's not going to be public. They're going to do it very subtly, very sneakily, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So it, we, we think of false teachers, we think of people out there, but Peter's telling us it can happen from within here when people introduce a different message, destructive heresies that deny Christ. So you can't assume that everybody who raises their hand and says, I'm on the same team in you, as you is actually on the same team as you. That's why John calls on us to test the spirits that come to us. In 1 John 4, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So what do we do if we find out somebody's preaching a different gospel? If they've got the same mission with the same boss and they're doing the same work, we've talked about that, right? But what do we do if we find out they're preaching a different gospel? Well, in Romans 16, verse 17, Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. That's the saving message of the gospel, right? And turn away from them. Paul says turn away from them. Greek word for turn away is a klino, and it means to shun. Avoid. They have deviated from the gospel, so deviate from them. When people deny the scriptures are from God, that they are without error and they will not fail us and that they are sufficient, then we have to deviate from them. We have to avoid them. When people deny that there is one God and he is a trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that humans were created in the image of God, that Adam and Eve sinned and brought sin and death into the world and all their descendants that were born from a man and a woman are also sinners when they deviate from the truth that sin is deserving of the wrath of God, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who lived a sinless life, who died an atoning death, who uh, resurrected victoriously and ascended to the right hand of the Father, if they deny that there will be a final day of judgment and that everyone will end up in heaven or hell forever, when they deny that Jesus is going to return, 
When they deny these things, they deny the gospel that we are called to contend for. They deny the only faith that actually saves. They deny the word of God that he inspired and handed down to us so that we would have all we need for salvation, all that we need to live godly lives. And that's when we have to divide. And I saw this yesterday actually on social media and I had to steal the quote and and bring it in. The Bible always blames division on the one who brings in the false teaching, not the one who corrects it. So as you divide from those that are teaching falsely, you're not the one in the wrong. And you would happily fellowship again if they would repent and teach the gospel. But there comes a time when we may have to say, we're not fighting for the same kingdom, we don't represent the same king, we can't call you brother. So what we're talking about here is what Pastor David preached about last week. I loved how it worked together. He he stood up here. He told us what the gospel is for 35 minutes and the importance of it for our lives from 1 Corinthians 15. So what we're talking about here is valuing that. It's gospel centrality. The gospel is central to everything we do. If someone desecrates the gospel with false teaching that leads to all sorts of immorality, that creates twofold children of hell, then we must divide from them. And it's heartbreaking when entire denominations begin to accept the sexual ethics of the world. It's heartbreaking. When they scrap the word and they scrap the teachings of men and women who established their churches to embrace lies from the world about things like marriage and gender, it breaks our hearts. That is when we have to say, you have failed to keep the gospel central. You have made the values of the world central. And we must divide until there is repentance. But when we have folks of different denominations or within our denomination we got this thing in the Southern Baptist denomination called church autonomy, which means we don't have, you know, some central office that tells us what to do, which means you, you get a lot of different flavors of this, this Baptist thing, okay, in the, in the Southern Baptist world. So we might have differences with folks in our own denomination. But when we have those differences in things like baptism and predestination and how to do ministry, we don't hinder their ministry. We pray for them. We, we, we might even say, well, we're not going to go to church on Sundays because we disagree on this thing, so we're going to church together on Sundays, but we'll go on a mission trip together, and we'll work together. You play golf with them. You find out what's going on in the other parts of the kingdom, right? You call them brother and sister, and we count them as friends, and we thank God we're not alone. John has this concern in this passage that the glory and that the fame of the disciples It's going to be harmed by these efforts. That's why he responds the way he does, isn't it? Jesus teaches them this lesson about greatness. Oh, Jesus, we tried to stop this guy. Because if that guy's doing it and he's doing it well, well, then we're not so special. It's not about our glory and fame. Greatness is not found in serving our own names and our own brands and advancing our own kingdom. It's found in putting ourselves last and advancing the kingdom of Christ. And if anybody else is doing that in a biblical, obedient way, we rejoice with them, we pray for them, and frankly, we tell them to rock on. This impacts how we think about other churches. How do you view the churches that are around us? Do you look at Crossroads Community Church or Calvary Chapel as our competitor? Do you look at Coastal Community Church or Catalyst Church is our competitor? 
Bethel Baptist, Reformed Christian Fellowship, By Grace Community Church. You look at these churches, some of which are in our denomination, some of which are not, and, and do you look at them and go, well, we're Walmart and they're Target. Or, no, what you, you, what you probably do is you go, we're Target and they're Walmart, you know what I mean? Everybody likes to go to Target a little bit more. You feel a little bit more upscale when you're in Target. Same stuff, for the most part. The home decor is nicer at Target, but, you know, it's all the same candy and food. Um, so do you do that? Because the reality is, is that when Walmart's stock goes up, Target doesn't have a party. They're not like, oh, it's just great for Walmart. No. They go, well, we got to do something better. we got to beat them. This is free market competition here. we got to overcome them, right? And the same thing. If Target's doing well, Walmart's not, not having themselves a party, and neither one of them's happy when Amazon's doing well. Do you look at the churches around us and say they are imposing themselves on our market share? Because I'm going to tell you, every church I just named is as solid as the stage I'm standing on. Now, listen, that's not all the solid churches around us. I just, I just picked a few, all right? There are others. But of the churches I just named, those are churches where I, I know their pastors personally. I know their faithful brothers in the Lord. They might do things differently than us. They might do things similar to us. Like, if you go to Bethel, it's basically just, like, Seaford in Tab, okay? So some do things similarly, some do things differently, but they're good, gospel-preaching, kingdom-advancing churches. And when they rejoice, we rejoice with them. And when they mourn, we mourn with them. And I can tell you from talking to those brothers, when we have victories and I share it with them, they rejoice with us because they view our victories as theirs. And when we have defeats, they mourn with us because they view our defeats as theirs. Why? Because they recognize it's the same kingdom, it's the same king, it's the same enemy, it's the same fight. So practically, this is how this works itself out for Seaford Baptist. Number one, having a kingdom mindset is why we pray for a different local church every single week. Have you noticed that? If you're wondering, like, why do we do this? I don't know why we're doing this. We pray for different churches around us, and we pray for their pastors by name. If we, we, some of them we know more than others, so if there's specific requests, we will pray for those specific requests. We lift them up to the Lord on our behalf because I want us to come in here every Sunday recognizing we have two enemies, not to, uh, too many enemies not to count our friends as friends, so we want to pray for our friends. We want to have not just a Seaford mindset, we want to have a kingdom mindset. Having a kingdom mindset also means we're going to be committed to supporting church plants. Can I give you a dream of mine? It's, I don't think it's a big dream. I think it's a very attainable dream. That five years from now, we would have financial commitments of some form or fashion to eight different church plants. I would love that. If five years from now, we had financial commitments, like we had skin in the game with eight different church plants, our hope is that by the end of 2021, we're going to have a financial commitment to two. So 25% of the way there. If we have a mindset of addition, we look at church plants and we go, that's competition. Imposing on our market share, right? And I'm not just talking about supporting church plants like in other states where we're not threatened by it, okay? 
we'll do some of that, but I'm talking about looking around us here in Hampton Roads and on the peninsula at churches that are starting and say, we're with you. If we have an addition mindset, then they're competition. If we have a multiplication mindset, a kingdom mindset, where we're not focused solely on building the brand of Seaford, then we're going to rejoice. We're going to rejoice over the fact that in Norfolk, there's this guy named Paul Hardy. He's planting a church to reach the biker culture of Norfolk. That's, he's out for the bikers. That's who he's out to reach. Bikers in Norfolk, in Virginia Beach. We're gonna, your pastors are going to try to go to lunch with him soon and get to know him. Adam Roberts grew up in our church. He's about to move to Colorado Springs and plant a church. You can go back on our Facebook page and you can watch our service from this past Wednesday. We talked to him in detail about what's going on there. We already support All People's Community Church in Fairfax. They hope to plant another church in Northern Virginia in the next 18 months. Isn't that amazing? The church plant we started supporting in 2016 is about to plant their second church. That's multiplication. Do you see? You invest in this one church, and now you've got three churches that you're investing in. There's also a thing called church revitalization that I think is incredibly important. Just keep that in the back of your mind, that when churches are dying, that you help them. A shining example would be Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C. Let me tell you about Capitol Hill Baptist, okay? This is not a flashy church. I've been there. Their worship on Sunday morning, it's a lot less than what we've got going on up here on the stage. They have a piano, maybe an acoustic guitar, and a couple of singers. That says worship at Capitol Hill on a Sunday morning. Their building is nice. It's pretty old, though. You know that smell in an old Baptist church? You know that smell if you know that smell, okay? I can't, can't describe it, but you know that smell. It smells like that in the bottom of the church. Their pastor is not the most charismatic guy, and yet in the last 15 years... They have revitalized five different churches in their area, congregations that were down to a few members. An addition mindset says, well, let that church die, and then we'll take their people over here. We'll add on. A multiplication mindset says, let's send our members and one of our pastors over there. And let's send some money, and let's build it back up. And that's what Capitol Hill did. Capitol Hill sent... Multiple pastors and about 36 members to Delray Baptist Church. When they arrived, Delray Baptist Church had 10 members. This morning, it's got 400. How amazing is that? It's a kingdom mindset. And by the way, Capitol Hill themselves turn people away at the door every single Sunday when they can actually have church and it's not COVID season because they're bursting at the seams. It's confusing to the world when we fail to count our friends as our friends isn't it? They're all fighting with each other. We're over here talking about love, but then if we're just fighting the way that they're fighting, they're going to look at us and go, what is this love you're talking about? Looks just like what we've got. Southern Baptist and Presbyterian can't look like Republican and Democrat. It can't. Southern Baptist and Southern Baptist can't look like Republican and Democrat. This goes both ways. Sometimes you've got to tell your lost friends that we're not on the same side as some people. I remember last year, one famous televangelist was on TV. And uh, I'm not going to say his name. I thought about saying it. I'm not going to say it. You can look it up. You'll find him. He's the only one who did this because it was nuts. He got up in the face of the camera and blew into it 
and said, this is the breath of the Holy Spirit, and I'm blowing COVID away. Well, it didn't work. All right? It didn't work. And it was silly. It's as silly as the false gospel he preaches. And a friend texted me and goes, is this your guy? That's what my friend Anthony texted me. He said, is this your guy? I said, it's not my guy. That's not our guy. All right? He preaches a different message. It's a different Lord. But when it is our guy, when it is our people, we need to treat them with love and pray for them and partner with them. Because if we act like our way is the only way and we badmouth everybody else on the block, our tribalism will be confusing, will sound just like the world, and we will undermine the very gospel we're preaching. So where's your heart at on all this as we close up this morning? Do you have a kingdom mindset? Would you have stopped that man the way that John did? Honestly, I'm going to ask you to answer out loud. Don't do that. Be honest in your heart, though. Would you have stopped him and said, you're not with us? Unless somebody's transgressing the gospel by forsaking the essentials, realize we have too many enemies to cast aside our friends. Same building, same mission, same boss. Let's work together. Father, thank you for this time. I know it's a different sort of message on a Mother's Day, um, and yet, God, it is a message consistent with what I think good mothers teach their children, which is to love your friends and to pray for your friends and to fight with your friends in a good way, to stand on their side and to fight for good, the good of the kingdom, God, the good that is your glory. And so I stand here this morning and I pray for those churches I mentioned and more here on the peninsula that are doing the same work that we're doing, whether it's Pastor Aaron or Pastor Doug or Pastor Tony or Pastor Sean or any of them, Father, I just pray that this morning the gospel is going forth in their church. There are people repenting of sin and putting their faith in you. And as we go forward as a church, help us to model uh, a kingdom mindset. Help us to um, be really selfless, God, and to view greatness as the way you've taught it, not as the world has taught it. I pray that this little Baptist church here, tucked away in the suburb of Yorktown, here in Seaford, could have a major impact on the world, on the peninsula, on, on places like Fairfax, um, Philadelphia, Colorado Springs, that we could have an impact on the world because we're thinking about the kingdom. And we're always looking for ways to join up with your forces and be on their side in the fight because their side is your side, Lord. We're your children doing your work. We look forward to one day when you will vanquish the enemies, when the dragon be thrown into the lake of fire, when there will be no more government to oppose the preaching of the gospel, when there will be no more um, antichrist messages going out into the world. And it will just be one people under their one Lord living on the new earth. But until then, we've got work to do, and we do not do it alone. So help us remember that we are not alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.